I'm Brent. Uh, Garen forgot to introduce me, but that's okay. I think many of you know who I am, some don't, but uh, anyway, I've been around here at 12th for a while, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. You see, the reality is that God loves you right now as you are, and may His love marinate your entire being, because we are to go and we are to love others because He loves everyone. That was a mic drop. That just rolled. You see, the reality is, is that God entrusted the world to humanity. And He knows that the world is a mess. But that's why He's going to come back and He's going to restore all things. He is in the process of making all things new. Now, I could honestly walk off stage and be done. Because if we were to take these concepts and let them marinate and soak our entire beings, I guarantee you we would be transformed people. Because God's love is the most powerful changing force in the entire universe. The concept of a mic drop, I didn't realize this, but it became uh, popular in the 80s. It dates back that far, and it was oftentimes used in, uh, in rap battles where one rapper would drop the mic. Or sometimes in uh, co comedy shows where uh, maybe there would be a heckler, and then the comedian would come back in such a way to just confound the heckler that they had nothing left to say, and so the comedian would drop the mic. It's become more popular since like 07 or so moving forward, but a reality is kind of the symbolism and the gist of dropping a mic is that either you have nothing left to say or no one has anything in reply to say because of what you have just said. And I think that Jesus had some mic drop moments during his life and during his ministry. A challenge was there was always so many people around or people coming back to him and wanting him to say more or, or even the, the difficulty we have today is like Jesus had said something on a topic and he's dropped the mic, but yet people pick up the mic and they start running after Jesus and they want Jesus to say more. Or perhaps they realize that maybe Jesus isn't going to say more and so they kind of step up and they pick up the mic for themselves and they say, well, I have some things to say about that. And then we have like the facepalm Jesus type thing that goes around, if you guys have ever seen that before. Now, I am, I'm really glad to be here with you today, whether you are here in person or whether you are online with us. And, and I want to pause even for a moment and just thinking about the reality of the, the reality of being, people being able to be with us online. Uh, a year ago was not happening in the capacity that it is now. Now, I know the difficulties of COVID and things is what kind of catapulted that forward. But had it been a year ago at this point in time, there would have likely been discussions amongst the staff of, are we even going to have services because there's going to be zero and there's going to be all this snow. And now it's like there will, I would say, continue to be services and encourage people to use their, um, you know, just their safety factor in getting out. But the online platform is an amazing thing. And so it will always be there. And that's a good thing because it's good to gather around Jesus and his word. And if you're new to us this morning, here in person or online, we are in the sixth week of going through the New Testament together as a church body. And we're in Matthew chapter uh, 22, 41 through 26, 19. We're going to be looking at a variety of things as we work our way through that. 
Now, if you've been here throughout this series or been uh, catching it online, you know that Garen has talked about in the course of going through this, and we're going to be working through the entire New Testament, that he doesn't have any intention of skipping any difficult texts. I mean, he's not going to be able to cover everything because we're doing the whole New Testament in an entire year, but he doesn't want to shy away from things that may be a little bit difficult or controversial. And he had absolutely no problem in saying in that same statement, and that's why I have Jason Hubner and I have Burent and I have Jordan, because I'm going to give them some things to, to preach. And I kind of laughed, but uh, we all know that Garen will tackle difficult things, just like he did a couple weeks ago uh, with the Syrophoenician woman. And speaking of difficult texts, we're going to need a little bit of time here this morning. Now, I don't really have a time barrier because there's not a third service, so just kind of like buckle in, I guess, and we'll see how long we go. That's a little bit of a joke, but not, not too much. Um, I do want to dive in here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Again, we're going to be from chapter 22, 41 to 26, 19. And we're going to be toward the end of our reading for the week uh, in chapter 26. And I am going to have it here on the screen for us as well. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. It says, Now on the day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed him, and they prepared the Passover. And what I want to do here this morning is I want to... Uh, dive into this text, and I want to uncover who it is this certain man that Jesus is pointing out. And because it's interesting, because it talks about a certain man, and the word intentionally used there, it's disguising the man's identity. But I want to uncover that for us here this morning. And you may be surprised at who it is, because it's significant. I mean, I'm not going to do anything with Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is talking about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. I'm not going to do anything with Matthew chapter 24, where we oftentimes try to chart where we are on a cosmic timeline when Jesus is going to come back. I'm not going to do anything with Matthew chapter 25 and the sheep and the goats. We're going to focus in here on this certain man. And, and that's a joke, just to be clear. I was given a book of 365 dad jokes from my oldest daughter for, uh, for Christmas. I got one every day, so I got lots of them. That one's not in there, but I got lots of dad jokes, by the way. Uh, I've been through a few of them so far. And I am joking, but I do want us to note this. I do want us to note Jesus says, go into the city to a certain man. And this is significant because at this point in time, Jesus is not really in stealth mode in his life, but he is being wise in what he is doing. So ever since he came into Jerusalem and people were lauding him as the, as the king and as the Messiah and laying down the palm branches, it's been a lot of confrontation. It's been the cleansing of the temple. It's been confounding the religious leaders. And Jesus would be in Jerusalem during the day, but at night he would leave and he would go out to Bethany. And so Jesus is being strategic because he knows that he is going to die. He's not afraid of that. From a human sense, he would be having some difficulty with that, as we will see in the garden next week. But he knows he's going to die. He's already told his followers that he is going to die. But he is being strategic because it seems as though Jesus wants to die on a very certain and specific day when you piece the Gospels together. 
And so Jesus is not leaving things to chance and he has things lined out and his disciples ask him a question. He says, well, there's a certain man that I want you to go find and that's how you're going to prepare. And I can't help but read this text and ask myself a question that I want to ask you this morning. Are you a person that Jesus can trust? Are you a person that Jesus can trust? You see, we, we need to look at the biblical scope and we need to read and we need to work to insert ourselves into some components of the, of the story to see how we would be faring in those situations. Now, I, I want to be clear here that Jesus is not going to manifest himself here this morning or later today and, and talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. He's not going to do that, okay? When he comes back in the flesh, this will be when it will be the consummation of all things. But if he were to do that, and if he were to sit down with you, and he were to say, you know what, I have something really significant that I need done. Can I trust you? Because this role that I'm asking you to play is going to be integral to me completing this path that my father has for me. Are you in? Can, can I trust you? I like how Sarah was talking about... Um, in between a couple songs there um, and talking about, you know, God's love for us is constant. And even when we fall short, because we need to be honest, we do fall short. And just because we fall short, it doesn't mean we're not trustworthy. It just means there's growth for us to have, right? I mean, some of the most beautiful words in scripture that we'll get to, I guess it's actually in Mark, so it won't be next week. But after the resurrection, Jesus tells uh, the women who are gathered at the tomb, go get the disciples and Peter. And the reason why and Peter is so significant is because Peter had just denied his Lord. And he was ashamed. So it's not that we don't struggle. It's not that we don't fall short. But are we trustworthy? Are we continuously moving toward Jesus? And can he come to us in a time when he needs us? Now, what I want to do here this morning is I want to do a little bit of a run-through because we're going to look at a handful of things kind of spanning the, the scope of what we read this past week. I'm going to touch on a few things, I'm going to touch on some mic drop moments that Jesus has, I think, but I, I want to come back to the text that I just read a moment ago. We're going to hop up a little bit above it, though, uh, so I don't know if you have to turn the page or not or, or scroll up on your phone, but in chapter 26, verse 3, it says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Again, this is why Jesus was being uh, strategic in the things that he was doing. But I want to focus on this word, they're gathered in the palace of the high priest. Because that same word occurred on Monday of our reading. And so if you don't have your read through the New Testament Bible, that's going to be in chapter 22, starting in verse 41. In chapter 22, verse 41, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together. And I can't help but read that and make the observation that we continuously gather around something. Right? I mean, we're gathered here around this place and around the Word, hoping to see the Word, Jesus, more clearly, or maybe you're online with us. Uh, last week, many of us in the afternoon gathered around a screen of some sort in order to watch the, the Chiefs uh, ultimately get curb stomped. That was a little bit disappointing, but I'm working to get over that. I, I feel the pain of everybody, although I must say some of those memes that Jordan did were really good. Even as a Chiefs fan, 
those were those were funny. But the reality is, is we all gather around something. And so my question is, are we gathering around Jesus? We're going to gather around something, and are we gathering around Jesus? And this is the reason why what Garen had a few weeks ago, or maybe this was the beginning of the year, this concept of the bounded set and the centered set thinking is really, really significant. I want to come back to it a little bit. He talked about it for a while, which is good. I just want to revisit it because it is so good and so central. Because a reality is, and you see there at the center of the centered set thinking, there's a cross, and he has orthodoxy underneath it. And really that word just means it's right doctrine, right belief. And that's an important thing. We need to have orthodoxy. We need to have right belief that leads us into orthopraxy, right action. And we want that to be centered and we want that to be focused on the person of Jesus because he is the only one worth us gathering around. The difficulty is, is so many times we can default back into this bounded set thinking where we look at other things that may be important, but they're not central to the whole thing. There may be, I mean... I think we're aware that there are a lot of other churches in Emporia and in Lyon County. And there are people in those different churches who love and follow Jesus, and there are some things where the beliefs are just a little bit different or the practices are a little bit different. But I think if the more we can focus on Jesus, the kingdom can continue to advance and do more significant things for the Father's glory. Because if we don't focus on the center set and we don't focus on Jesus, what happens over time is that bounded set thinking, that circle gets a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller. And we become a little bit more concerned about making sure we have our list of doctrinal things right or maybe looking at other people who don't quite believe all the same things we do and wondering if maybe even they're in or not. When they're loving Jesus, they're just interpreting some things a little bit differently, perhaps. And the reason why I'm going into this is because there has a couple things. There has been more than one or two church squabbles over the course of the last 2,000 years. And they haven't all had to do with Jesus. And more than one or two is like a dramatic understatement. (laughs) We want to be a Jesus-centric, a Jesus-focused people. But another reality is, too, when we look at this concept here, uh, Garen brought this up a couple, maybe last week, and he showed us, uh, this is four of the five major Jewish groups. These were all Jews uh, in the time when Jesus was alive and walking the earth. He had these four on here because these were the four that would have been in and around Jerusalem during the time of his last week when he was on earth. The Essenes probably wouldn't have been around. Maybe some came into town to see what the hubbub was about. We don't know that for sure. But I show this to point out the reality is it's, it's amazing to me because we have, we have political and we have religious and then we have the divisive terms of liberal and conservative on there. And Jesus had people following him from each of those quadrants. Jesus had people following him from each of those quadrants, if not during the Gospels. And we know for sure there were some Pharisees because Nicodemus was one. And he was on a path of following Jesus. And then we have a guy, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who, who utilized his tomb, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was also searching for the kingdom of God. You see, he had a centric focus on the kingdom of God and on the things of God. And we do know that Jesus had a guy based on the, the name, at least Simon the Zealot, he would have been in that lower left-hand corner, up there, lower left-hand corner, and he would have just as soon taken a knife and stuck it in the back of someone who was loyal to Rome as to be a friend of them. And we know that Jesus had people loyal to Rome because he had a tax collector among his closest followers. 
And so we have all these squabbles and all these boundaries, this, this bounded set thinking all around Jesus, but Jesus continued to bring them to the kingdom, continued to throw them parables, continued to confound them by the way that he would love people, which loving people in that day and age was quite revolutionary. We're a little bit more used to it today, although we struggle with showing love to people who differ from us the way we think many times. But the way that Jesus showed love to the, the different people of his society was revolutionary. We just live in the benefit of that in a Western culture, and sometimes we can lose sight of Jesus. But I show us this because at the center point of this, and, and if we could do like a, a uh, time machine experiment, if we could somehow hop in a time machine and go back to the first century world and sit down with these religious groups and explain this diagram to them, I guarantee you this is what would have happened. If being on the outsides is where you don't want to be because you got your bounded set thinking going on, they probably would have thought, well, they may be a little bit off kilter, but no, we're very centric. We're very focused here. And I drew that arrow with the Pharisees. I could draw it with the, with the Sadducees or the Zealots or the Rodians. And what I'm saying is that in real time, real space, it is very difficult to acknowledge the reality that maybe we're a little bit off in our thinking. But that's something that I want to encourage us to step into a little bit, not to like cast doubts or anything like that, but just to be aware of our own limitations as people. Because they were not intentionally doing the wrong things. In fact, Jesus even lauds them for some of the things they were doing. If you read through Matthew chapter 23, for example, the Pharisees and some of the scribes, which would have been included with the Sadducees, they were tithing their dill and their mint and their cumin. And Jesus said, these things you ought to have done. However, they, they neglected the weightier matters of the law. And so he says, you're doing some good things. You're just leaving some things out. And it's this bounded, center set thinking thing, because at the center of it should have been, I got there, uh, Yahweh or the Lord, all caps in the Bible. It should have been him. And the challenging thing is, is that the inception of each of those movements, it was. It's very easy for us to read through the Gospels and see the Sadducees and the Pharisees as, quote unquote, the bad guys. And in a sense, it is set up that way because they're speaking very directly to their first century culture. But we need to understand as well that the issues that they're struggling with are ones that we can struggle with as well. Yahweh should have just like over encompassed all of those categories. And if you're struggling with me a little bit here this morning about, well, I don't know if we have that much difficulty. I mean, we have the Bible. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us. I don't know if this is much of an issue as Brent is pointing it out. I'm going to take our major political parties today. and I'm going to put them in this quadrant. Are we ready for that? I'm getting some raised eyebrows because this is also another joke. I am not going to attempt that. Um, but you see, a reality is, I know people who love Jesus, who are at the left end of the political spectrum, and I know people who love Jesus that are at the right end of the political spectrum. And if you observed their life, you would not know how they voted, because they're doing Jesus-centric, Jesus-focused things. Are we going to focus on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or are we going to focus where we draw some lines? And I'm not saying you can't have some political convictions. I can't, I'm not saying you can't, I, that uh, you should doubt all those things. But I am saying, is Jesus-centric? Is he the focal point? And what do we do when we see fruitful Christians 
who perhaps vote in a slightly different way or maybe a drastically different way than we do. What are we going to do with that? Are we going to be focused on Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords? When I think about this reality, and I will confess, I am glad I live in this day and age with its struggles, because if I were alive when Jesus was alive, I don't know that I would have counted myself amongst his faithful followers. Um, I just don't know that I would have got it figured out. I resonate with this quote here. It says, quite often I fear that I would have made a good Pharisee, and just in blanket terms, just focus on the legalism. And there's reasons why they had that in place, by the way or a good Sadducee on the side of the government, or even a good zealot to Gehenna with everyone and just shout out freedom. And Gehenna is H-E double hockey sticks, by the way, in Greek. Um, I likely would have even made a good Gnostic, always wanting to know, thinking knowledge was the key. And I continue to be baffled at how hard it is to make a good Christian of myself. Actually, it is impossible as far as I am concerned. That is where the Holy Spirit comes in the need for transformation. You see, it's so easy to think that, even seeking to be Jesus-centric, but it's so easy to think that we are Jesus-centric and focused on Him, when in reality what we need to understand is that we all come to the Bible and we all approach it and we all have a certain set of lenses on. Now, for those of you who wear glasses regularly, they just kind of mold in. You don't even really know that you have them on, right? But other people can look at you and they can see that very clearly that person has on glasses. And if you were to swap glasses with the person next to you, it would be out of focus or bring it in a little bit closer, those types of things. And I want us to understand that is really what's going on when we read Scripture. We have lenses that have been handed to us perhaps by our culture or the church family that we're a part of. And I'm not saying that those lenses are bad. What I'm saying is we need to understand that we have them. And the difficulty comes in when we think we don't have them, and it's obvious to everyone else that we do. I mean, these look a little bit foolish, right? I mean, I got Batman here right in front of my eyes, but he's so close that I can't even tell. And I may be reading Scripture through the lenses of Batman, and everyone else can see it, but I can't because I'm too close to it. And so I come back to this idea and this concept of, are you a person that Jesus can trust? And I think in order to be a trustworthy person to Jesus, I think we need to understand that we are limited when it comes to our understanding of some things in Scripture. I'm not saying we can't learn and we can't figure things out. I mean, that's something I greatly enjoy. But I am saying and I am cautioning us to understand that we're never going to have it 100% figured out. Because at the end of the day, even with one-third of the Trinity living inside of us, we are still finite creatures. And He is infinite. And there is always going to be more for us to learn. In fact, the reality is, is that when we think we have things figured out, I think Jesus lovingly wants to come into our lives and through the Holy Spirit and ask us some more questions to probe a little bit deeper to see, do we really understand the things that we are asserting? And you may be thinking, well, where, where am I getting that from? Well, I'm getting that from the text. Let's continue on back in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. That's the right answer, by the way. 
I mean, Matthew chapter 1 starts out the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and also the son of Abraham. So they give Jesus the right answer, but then Jesus, doing a very Jesus-like thing, probes a little bit. And he probes with a question. Well, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Mic drop. Right? I mean, we see it here in the text, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, because he asked the question of them that they hadn't even thought of, and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And it's interesting because Psalm 110 is, I believe, the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament. But it was not even on their radar as far as it being possibly a messianic psalm pointing to the coming Messiah. Jesus has questions of the things that we assume and the things we even believe because there's always more. There is always more. Well, there were too many people around for this to be a total mic drop moment. And then and in chapter 23, verse 1, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. So his, his focus shifts away from the Pharisees and the scribes over to the crowds around him and to his disciples. And uh, as we go through this, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but, but I do want to say this. If you read through Matthew chapter 23 this week and didn't really bat an eye, I want to encourage you to go back and read Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in, for, I think, most followers of Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7 is pretty challenging because Jesus is laying out some things very clearly and he's moving beyond behavior modification to the internal things and the workings of the heart. But if you read Matthew 5 through 7 and then also read Matthew chapter 23, you're going to see some similar things there. Jesus is circling back to the same types of things. And so it's not as easy as just breezing through this and thinking that Jesus has nothing to say to us, although I'm not going to spend much time here. But again, if Matthew 5 through 7 is challenging, then Matthew 23 ought to be challenging as well. It's far more easy to look externally or to seek to modify our behavior. And I want to be clear, I think there are some things that Jesus wants us to do less of and some things he wants us to do more of. But it's more challenging to look internally within ourselves. For example, Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Outwardly you appear righteous to others, but in, within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Very easy to modify behavior, which sometimes is quite a challenge. It's a whole other beast to bring the heart under control. And that's where the uncleanness is, is what Jesus tells us earlier in the Gospels. Especially with the morning, I can't help but at least touch on this. Does anybody see anything challenging with this picture right here? All of those vehicles, except for that one, are pointed the wrong way. Why? Because the snow had whitewashed everything and there's no lines. And so the person that arrived first that morning parked the wrong way 
And then everyone else followed suit until that person came along later. And if you don't believe me, go up and stand on the, on the balcony going into the, into the church building office and look out and you'll see those cars this morning because some people scooped the lines. Thanks, by the way, Andrew and Caleb and others who are doing that. Those cars can park properly. And Jesus calls these Pharisees and scribes blind guides because they've lost sight of the important things. They lost sight of the the Yahweh-centric model, or for us, the Jesus-centric model. So I'm not saying it's just anything and everything. There are right doctrines and right beliefs that we need to have. We just need to make sure that those are a very Jesus-centric thing because we don't want our life to lead other people astray. It's a whole lot worse than parking all over the place in a snow-packed parking lot. I do want to ask a question here, though, in Matthew chapter 23. And the question is this. What do you think Jesus' tone is? I mean, he has seven woes, seven rebukes of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's an important number because this is a number of completion for the Jewish people. And so this is like a complete uh, expose of really the unfortunate state of many of the religious elite. And Jesus isn't really pulling any punches here, but I wonder, what do you think his emotive tone is? You see, last week, Garen introduced us to Jiu-Jitsu Jesus, right? They come at Jesus with a question, and he just kind of sidesteps and uses their momentum against them. I mean, for a long time, I used to think that this was like Thunder Punch Jesus. Like, Jesus is just like, boom, body shot, woe to you, and just like, level on them. And he might be. But a reality is, woe, the, the word that's translated woe, or maybe I think, oh, how sorry for you, I think is how the, the version we had when we were reading through the week. All that is, it's a term that's used where there is distress or trouble or hardship. It doesn't have to be a both guns blazing type of thing. It can be immense sorrow and heartache because these people are not getting it. I mean, for those who are parents, sometimes when things are happening with your kids, sometimes there's some anger, but sometimes there's just some deep heartache because they're just not getting it. And I can't help but think that there's some deep heartache that's going on with Jesus. And I'm not saying there's not some, what we would think, anger rising to the top in all in these types of things. But it would just be fascinating to, to see what exactly was going on in the Creator's heart and mind as he is going through these things. We are going to move on from there, but I, I do want to encourage you to, to spend some time there. Those could be some good reflection questions with your, with your triad or your quad that you're reading through the New Testament with, as if you just kind of skimmed over those. Maybe at some point revisit them a little bit. But I do want us to keep moving, because whether or not Jesus is railing on them or he's practically weeping over them, we do come to this in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. And I know there's a verse 39, but I'm going to pause there because this is another mic drop moment by Jesus. Because what he's just doing there is he is just pronouncing judgment on the temple. Their house, this is a way that which they would refer to the temple, he says is going to be 
destroyed. And at this point in time, the disciples are probably reeling just a little bit. Because we need to understand, as easy as it is for us to see the Pharisees and the scribes as the quote-unquote bad guys, um, especially the Pharisees would not have been viewed that way by many of the people in Jesus' day. For some of them, yes, but for some, they were almost like the heroes. And so the disciples are, are trying to figure out these things that Jesus is doing. And even earlier in the Gospels, one time after Jesus kind of unloads on the Pharisees, Jesus says, hey, or the disciples come to Jesus and like, hey, Jesus, I, I think you made them mad. He's <laughs> like, what, what, are you, what are you doing here? And so we, we come to this point where Jesus has just talked about how their house is going to be left to them desolate. And then in chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples come up to him. And it's almost like the disciples are carrying the microphone to Jesus. They're like, Jesus just talked about the temple being destroyed. What, what's going on? Can we, can we give you the microphone so you can explain this a little bit more? And it would be nice to be there to see if they were actually talking about the temple structure and how wonderful and majestic it was, which it truly was, or if they were just opening their mouth and Jesus is still kind of like, I'm just done. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Because what he says in verse 2, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Boom. Another mic drop. I mean, he's, he's being very clear here. And a reason why I know this is a mic drop, because verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, once again with the microphone, right? But the thing is, as they left the temple, is when Jesus said what he said there in verse, oh, verse 2. Dropping all sorts of things. Sorry, everybody in the back. Verse 2, right outside the temple, they would have had a walk down through a valley up onto the Mount of Olives, which takes a while, and then they come to them. So there is a sustained break in the conversation. I'm not sure how long it is. I've never been there to walk it, but I know that there is a sustained break in the conversation. And here the disciples come to him, and they ask him a question again. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age. In essence, Jesus, I still have some questions. I've got a microphone here. Can you, can you say some more things for me? Now, before I go any further, I do want to note that for those of us who read through Matthew chapter 24, there's some kind of crazy things in there, right? Anybody who read through there? Okay, there's some interesting things taking place. For example, verse 29 of chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now I know in, in the, uh, my time with God New Testament, which many of you have, or even if you don't, sometimes there's a footnote, but right in behind that or underneath it in the text for the week, there was Isaiah chapter, uh, I think 13 or 12 in there because that is an Old Testament text. It also happens in Ezekiel chapter 32, for example. But what I want us to understand is that while this may sound cataclysmic, end of the world type of things to us, this is not that type of thinking for them. This is rise and fall of nations language. And we see this in the Bible. And Jesus right here, he's using in Matthew chapter 24 is an example of, and here's like a $5 Bible study word. He's using apocalyptic imagery to communicate truth. And what apocalyptic imagery is, it's a whole uh, 
style or genre of writing, and it uses highly symbolic language to comfort and exhort an oppressed people. And it's very popular in Jesus's day, the time before Jesus until about 200 years after Jesus. There's actually several uh, Christian apocalypses that were written. They're just not canonical. There were Jewish apocalypses that were written as well this apocalyptic genre. We do have one in the, the book of Revelation. It's three genres together. We'll get there in the month of December, letter, prophecy, and apocalyptic. But Jesus is using common language that people would have understood in the day. And this is not a like Bible study lecture, but I do want to do this because this, pro, this gets into the need to be able to grow to read the Bible naturally. And I want to illustrate what I mean by this since today's Valentine's Day. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. I mean, this is pretty good stuff. Any, any single guys, you know, take note. This is some things that a, a, a young lady would enjoy hearing, all right? But you may want to cut it off there, and I'm going to adjust this a little bit because I'm hearing it, so you guys probably are too. See if that will help out. Um, you may want to cut it off there because the next line says, Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I mean, can you imagine this woman that you're wanting to romance a little bit and her, she's kind of, you know, oh, that's so nice. And then all of a sudden my hair is, what? And you're like, oh, no, 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 honey, just, just let me keep going here. Um, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes. Oh, wait, that, that can't be right. Let me, let me keep going here. Your neck is like the power of David? And I'm pulling this right from Scripture, and see, the thing is, here is this woman. If we do not allow the intended ideas that the author is getting across based on genre and writing styles and literary types of things, which may sound odd to us, but we use it all the time. I mean, you tune to a certain station and you expect to hear a certain music. If you turn to, you know, a modern pop and you would hear country, you'd be thinking, what's wrong? This is the wrong station. It's a, it's a genre uh, crossing of lines. And so it's the same thing here. What takes place in there is we want to allow the Bible to be read naturally. We want it to be able to read naturally because, I mean, I've, I've been married for 17 years. I'm very happily married. But if this were like 20 years ago and Valentine's Day, I, I'd be looking at her and I'd be thinking, yeah, can I have your number? And, and that would be a joke also, right? I mean, you get what I'm saying. We want to work to be able to understand and read the Bible naturally. And that can be very hard for us to do because many times we are given some lenses by which we interpret Scripture. And so we need to understand that we have some lenses when we come to it. And I am going to dig just a little bit in the text as we go through Matthew chapter 24. I'm not going to go uh, super deep. It's not a whole class on eschatology, but I do want to say a couple things from the outset. There is a certain way that Matthew chapter 24 is often interpreted that while I don't agree with, um, how it's interpreted, I can be okay with it so long as they obey by some guidelines, and that is to keep Jesus central and focused. Where I have difficulty is, is that a way that Matthew chapter 24 is often interpreted leads to people setting dates about when Jesus is going to come back. 
That I have a problem with. There are websites dedicated to cataloging all the times that Christians have set dates for when Jesus is going to return. And you want to know the reason why they, they catalog all those? Is because their thinking is if they can't get it right by reading the Bible and they set all these dates, if they can't get his second coming right, then why should we believe anything about his first coming? You see that? If they continually read the Bible and piece things together and say this verse supports this and this verse supports that, and they are always wrong, which every date setter has one thing in common. Well, two, I don't know how they still have their prophecy card, one. And number two, they're always wrong. So you may not agree with the things I'm going to go through here. Uh, and I trust that even if you don't agree with the schema I have and you lean toward the one that uh, sets the dates, I trust that you won't be setting the dates because it does damage to our Christian witness. And as I go through this, I want to point out a few key things that can keep us from taking Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and using it to predict or prognosticate about the future when Jesus will come back. And as I do that, I, I do want to just point out, you know, history is very, very important when reading the Bible. And I appreciated what Garen did a couple uh, weeks ago. Ah, I got off on my slides. I appreciate what Garen did a couple weeks ago when he was using um, the example of the Syrophoenician woman, one of the very difficult texts in the New Testament. But when he broke things down for us all, and he showed even how it's laid out here with the parallel things, and number one and number six being parallel, the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, those things are thematically the same. The healings and the miracles, thematically the same. Dealing with the, what comes out from the heart, dealing what makes us clean and unclean, thematically the same as this Syrophoenician woman. That's the importance of diving into some history. And so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of history here, but there is some history dealing with uh, this text in Matthew chapter 24. Because one of the things, I didn't do this one here, what I'm going to propose to you this morning is this is how Jesus breaks things down in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 29, as well as in verses 32 through 35, he's talking about the destruction of the Jewish temple. Period. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44, and then even a little bit further into chapter 20, uh, 25, he's talking about when he returns, the final consummation of all things. So in other words, although it may be tempting to read through Matthew chapter 24 and think, oh my goodness, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, all these types of things, there's just an earthquake last week, and we may be tempted to run to those things, Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen, and that something is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And catch this, the reason why he does that is because there are people he loves in Jerusalem, and he loves everybody, by the way, but his followers, he does not want to get caught up in the mess that's about to come because there was a Jewish revolt that started in AD 66, and it ended in AD 70 with Rome wiping out the Roman temple and killing thousands and thousands of people. And Jesus didn't want anybody to be a part of that, but he didn't want his followers to be a part of that either. And so he's warning them to get out. And the amazing thing is, is that history tells us there is this guy, a Roman emperor named Caligula, about 30 years prior to the temple being destroyed. I think it's 30 years. He tried to set up a statue for himself in the Holy of Holies. He was on his way to do that. And the people were trying to stall because they knew that was going to be uh, like this huge event that would t start off a war. He finally got assassinated by one of his own generals and they went home. 
At that point in time, what history tells us is that there are followers of Jesus who left Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. We're not going to go through all those details, but there's historical things in here where Jesus is saying, this stuff is coming. I want you to be ready for it. And when you see it, I want you to get out because I don't want you caught up in it. History is a, a very significant and uh, important thing. And I'll just throw out one non-biblical example here in case those maybe bore some people. Uh, you're going to have to be a football fan for this one to resonate, though. Let's just say that and uh, the next five years, the Chiefs go on a tear, and they win five Super Bowls in a row. And then Patrick Mahomes retires at the peak of his career. He just, like, pulls a Jim Brown and walks off, okay? 200 years from now, the debate, and it will be happening now, but the debate about who's the greatest of all time, the GOAT, him or Brady, will be going on, right? And some people will look at it and will say, well, well Brady had seven Super Bowl championships, and Mahomes only had six, so obviously Brady's the best. And by the way, the only time they met in the Super Bowl, Brady won, so obviously he's the best. And some other people would say, well, let's bring in a little bit of history here because Mahomes retired after winning five in a row, peak physical condition, peak of his prime and everything, and he just walks away. What if he had continued? Then what would the case be? Let alone the fact that the poor guy had to run for like 500 yards before ever throwing a pass or getting sacked in the Super Bowl. Did you guys know that? Did you see any of those stats? I read 400, not 497 yards. Broke the record. The most that anybody had ever had to scramble before throwing a pass. Brady, on the other hand, a Super Bowl era low, four pressures. This is crazy. Anyway, we'll just leave that beside. Um, there's more important things we want to focus on, Jesus. But just, just that to show that history and the cultural context is always going to factor into these things. Now, I am going to pick up the pace for the sake of time here. Um, oh, I do want to come back to here. So this here, what we have, this is a translation that a friend of mine, uh, Shane Wood, did. And he, he, did, he translated it this way. It's a very legitimate translation in order to bring out the essence of what the disciples are saying. In verse 3, Say to us, when will these things happen? The these things is the destruction of the temple that Jesus talked about. That is, in other words, when is the temple going to be destroyed, which is also the same as you coming back, which is also the completion of the age? Because for them, it was all together. That's the essence of the question that they are asking. And what Jesus does is he breaks it apart into a couple things. And the first thing that I want to show us, and you can mark this in your Bible, is in chapter 24, verse 36. And again, this is where I'm breaking it to where Jesus shifts to the second coming type language. And a way that I, we would see this is because it says in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So in other words, there's all these things that are going to be happening that are going to lead up to the destruction of the temple. But the time when I'm coming back, no one's going to know. And that grammatical construction that, that's translated as but concerning, Jesus uses earlier in Matthew chapter 22, where he shifts topics a little bit with the Sadducees. But Paul uses it. Uh, one, several times in the letter to the Corinthians. One, two, three, four, five times, as you'll see uh, right there. He uses it, he's going through and he says, but concerning, or now concerning, because he's addressing questions that they have asked him. So that is a reason why I'm breaking it down there. But we'll go just a little bit further here. Because once again, the disciples ask him in chapter 24, verse 3, when will these things happen and when will be the close of the end of the age? And they use a specific word there, it's at the top of the screen, this word, soon to lay. 
Jesus used that word earlier when he's talking and he's given, and we read it earlier a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 13. It's the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds. And he says at the close or the end of the age, because the wheat and the weeds are going to grow up together, because if they would come and harvest, they would rip up some wheat. If they go to pluck the weeds out, rather, they would get some wheat as well. So Jesus says, no, leave them all together. And at the end of the age, the angels will come and they'll separate them. That's that same word uh, there, the soon to lay word. It's used in chapter 24, verse 3 as well. And then Jesus uses it at the end of the gospel in Matthew chapter 28, verse 30, or 20, where he says, And surely I am with you always until the end of the age. It's very clear what that word is. However, when Jesus is answering his disciples in verses, um, verses 6, 13, and 14, where he talks about the end, that is a different word. It's not the same word that the disciples used when they asked him. So, for example, in chapter 24, verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay? That word end is talking about the end of a process. He's talking about the destruction of the Jewish temple is what he's talking about there. We can see it used in Matthew chapter 26, verse 58, where Peter is following beside, this is after Jesus has already been arrested and he's outside watching things that are taking place because Peter wanted to see the end. That's where that word is used. He wants to see what's going to be the result of this trial that they are putting Jesus through. So we can break it down that way. We see this is the end of a process, not the end of everything here in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, since I mentioned verse 14, the end is here also, and the, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. It's easy for us to read the whole world, and we think what? The globe, right? But that's not what this word means necessarily. It's used, for example, in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, where Caesar was having attacks, Augustus was, over, and it's translated this way, the whole inhabited Roman world. So everywhere where Rome was boss, that's where they had this tax. And that's the word that's used here in Matthew chapter 24. That's the word that Jesus is intentionally using. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, talks about how the gospel has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. And he uses a word that goes beyond this word here. The word here in Matthew 24 is oikumene. Uh, what Paul uses in uh, Romans 1 and Colossians 1 is he uses the word cosmos to mean all of creation. So Paul seems to think that the gospel has been proclaimed everywhere. In other words, is what I'm saying. And even in chapter, a uh, little bit later on in chapter 1 of Colossians, in verse 23, he uses a different word than, than uh, the creation just to expand it even further. And the last one, there's other ones besides this, but this is the last one that I'll use. You see there on the screen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, it says uh, right after another talk about the, um, the destruction of the temple with a fig tree. That's something that was last week that we won't go into. But he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And you'll see there on the screen, the other places where this generation is used in the gospel of Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus is talking to those people who are alive right then and there, not some future generation. And then verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is throughout Jewish literature that heaven and earth is a place that the temple is. It's this overlap. Again, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And why? Because he wants them 
to get out. There's no need to jump to the end of the world and what might happen in the last times until Jesus comes back unless we have those particular lenses on when we read through Matthew 24, in other words. And I do want to wrap this up. And I do want to come back to what I said about being Jesus-centric and Jesus-focused. You don't have to agree with the things I'm saying. We can still love Jesus and disagree with this. However, back to the thing where I said earlier, I think Jesus asked us questions about the things we believe and we assume. I hope we can sit with some of these things, just like I try to sit with them to come to the clearest understanding that I can come to. And as Jesus shifts in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. From that point in time, his message is, no one's going to know. It's going to be like in the days of Noah, and no one's going to know. It's going to be like when the, the bridegroom goes away. And did you notice in chapter 25 that he was delayed? And then in chapter 25, a little bit longer with the parable of the talents, the guy, he went away, and after a long while, he came back. In other words, once again, Jesus is breaking it down. These things are going to happen imminently, but my return is going to be a while. And when we look at what's talking in chapter 25 and following, it's all about our ethics, what we do and how we live. That's what's hammered over and over again in chapter 25. And so I come back to once again, are you a person that Jesus can trust? Are you a person he can trust? We want to have Jesus be the center of all of it. And as I wrap up, if we knew somehow for certain, and we don't know, but let's just say for sake of argument, somehow we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow for certain. I hope you would do nothing different today than you had already planned. Now, why would I say that? Because I want you, just as I want me, to be living as faithfully as I can every single day because we never know when he's going to come back. Does that make sense? I think that's something we can all agree on. The one thing that I will add into that is there's a conversation or two that I'd like to have. And what does that mean? That's not to shame me. That means I take this conversation or two I'd like to have, and that becomes a prayer point because I want to be more intentional about making sure that people know about Jesus and the coming restoration of all things. As I wrap up, ultimately, I think we can agree here, even if you don't agree with some of the things that I laid out, that it's not about when, meaning when will it happen, but it's about why. Why? Because the world's a mess and God is seeking to restore all things. It's not about what, meaning what's going to happen before Jesus returns, but it's about who. Who are we following? Are we following the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Are we praying that just as he restored sight to the blind, that he would help to peel away the lenses that we have so we can see him and his kingdom more fully? It's not ultimately about where, meaning where are we on some cosmic timeline, but it's about how. How are we to live now? I think if that's our central point, if that's our focus, that's Jesus-centric, and I think we become more and more the type of people that Jesus can trust. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for the compassion of Jesus. 
Um, I, I think it's clear. Some may not agree, and that's okay. We can still love Jesus and disagree. But it, it's amazing to me where he took real concerns of the people of his day and age, and in a real way, he showed them things to be aware of because he loved them and he wanted them to get out. He, he wanted to validate his own message because the temple had unfortunately become an obstacle. But then he also loves us so much that he invites us into this ongoing journey when he says, whenever I come back, you're never going to know. And help us to live within that tension. Help us to be people who don't look outwardly, but continue to look inwardly in us so that your spirit can continue to refine us. May your love marinate our entire being so that we can therefore look outward with your eyes and see a lost and broken world and step into it in the ways that you would have us. We pray this in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. As always, you are sent. Be careful, it's cold and uh, snowy.